Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. This is John O'Leary. So happy to have you here joining me in the Live Inspired Movement. On every Live Inspired podcast episode, I have amazing guests join me to share their story, their successes, their failures, their lessons, and their life. But maybe even more importantly, you're going to have some real ideas, maybe a shift in your mindset, and some actions to apply in your own life. Before we get started today, if you're not doing this already, I encourage you to do it right now. Go to my primary website. You can find that at johnolearyinspires.com. Again, it's johnolearyinspires.com. It's where we will keep the show notes for this podcast and all previous podcasts. It's where we keep our blog, our vlog, links to our work, the book On Fire, our speaking schedule, and what all of this means to you. It's a beautiful site. Check it out at johnolearyinspires.com. Occasionally in life, you bump into a book that has the opportunity, if you're open to it, of positively and permanently changing your life. And then when you meet the author, if you're lucky, you find out that the person who wrote it is even better than the author, better than even the ideas put forward in the book. And that has been my experience with a guy named Hal Elrod. He is an incredible author. He's an incredible speaker. He's an incredible guy. I'm lucky enough to call him my friend, and we, my friends, are lucky enough to have him on today's podcast. You're going to love it, so buckle up. Open up your journals, your mind, your eyes, grab those pens, and get ready for a wild ride as we bring on our newest friend, Hal Elrod. Hal, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. John, I, that, what a beautiful, authentic, awesome introduction. I'm, I, I'm glad you're recording this because I'm, I'm going to set that on repeat and just play your intro of me over and over uh, to boost my self-confidence and self-esteem. Man, you could do that, or you could just keep reading Miracle Morning, and you will be reignited like the rest of us are who have checked it out and now follow your work. Hal, for those who don't know the name Hal Elrod yet, tell us in in short a little bit about who you are, maybe where you live, a little bit about your work and your family today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I am uh, the the husband of Ursula and Elrod, and the father of Sophie and Halston Elrod. Uh, eight-year-old daughter, five-year-old son, and uh, those are my, that's that's my number one, is that my family, my unit, and uh, we live here in Austin, Texas for about a year and a half now, mostly uh, California my whole life before that, and uh, yeah, and I'm primarily an author, uh, and a, I guess I'd say a speaker, I do quite a bit of keynote speaking, similar to you uh, yourself, and uh, and then we have a movie coming out, the Miracle Morning uh, movie, or the Miracle Morning documentary, uh, coming out here in the spring, and and then technically, my wife just pointed this out. She goes, "Sweetie, you get to put executive producer in in your bio." That's awesome. So that sounds that feels weird. I don't know. I guess I don't know what it feels like to be a producer of a movie, but uh, but anyway, so that that kind of sums up my uh, my the professional life, if you will, and the personal a little bit. You kind of undersold it in some regards. The the Miracle Morning is a number one national best selling book. It has sold about how many copies, Hal? Six hundred thousand. Yeah, so so not small math here. You've touched a lot of lives, including my own. It's a beautiful work, and yet 
you know, I, I've heard it said that everybody has a story. It's just not always the story they tell the world. Your story did not begin with your beautiful wife, with those two kids in Austin, sure. Texas. It begins at a very different place in a very different state at a very different time. So let's back way up so folks get to know a little bit more about the heart and the essence and the life of Hal Elrod. Hal, where were you born and what was life like for you growing up? Yeah, I was born in uh, Southern California in Camarillo. And I, uh, when I was five years old, I moved. So I was born, uh, I was the first firstborn and then had a sister born about a year and a half later. And uh, when I was five and my sister was three and a half, we moved up to the mountains of the Oakhurst, California, Northern California, uh, up near Yosemite National Park. And, uh, and that, that's where I grew up. And, and really the kind of the, the fun, um, kind of a fun transition and change in our lives was uh, at age 11. When I was 11 years old, my parents bought a grocery store and uh, it was a grocery store built in 1945, and in the back of the grocery store uh, was a house. So it was—I don't mean—I don't mean behind the store. I mean, if you walked out of Check Stand One and took six paces and opened the door, it was your living room. <laughs> so, and I, so that's an amazing story. Why? Why did they decide to buy this 1940-style grocery store with the home behind it? Yeah, well, my dad actually was the manager there, and he always—my dad has a real entrepreneurial spirit, which is where I get mine from, I think, and. Uh, and so he always wanted to own his own business. And so there came up an opportunity for where, where he found out there was uh, rumblings of the possibility that the owners might, might want to sell the store. And he kind of, uh, you know, put his, put his foot in line and, uh, and, and, and made the purchase. And, uh, yeah, it was a really cool experience. During the summer, we'd put, you know, a hot dog stand out in front of the store, and we'd hire a band, and they'd play music, you know, throughout the, during the 4th of July. And yeah, it, it was a blast. We, we, you know, in the morning in our pajamas, we'd go get food off the shelves and <laughs> right. whatever we wanted. It sounds like a, a money loser for mom and dad, but but an incredible way to grow up for you and your, yeah. your family. How, growing up there, what what were some lessons that you learned from the, 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 the back room of this grocery store? How did it influence your life? One of the biggest lessons uh, um, I learned, you know, I learned from my mom and dad. Uh, well, I'll actually I'll back up a little bit um, on the journey. When I was eight years old, uh, my sister, I had, a, I had a baby sister that was born when I was, uh, or I was, she was born when I was seven. Uh, and when I was eight and a half, uh, I woke up one morning to my mother screaming and I ran across the hall and uh, my, my dad was at work. My, my uh, other sister, Haley, who's a year and a half younger, she was at my grandma's house. And so it was just me, my mom, and my baby sister, Amory, home. And I woke up hearing screaming, and I ran across the hall, and my mom was saying, my baby, my baby. And uh, she was giving mouth-to-mouth resuscitation to my sister. And uh, it, was, it was unsuccessful. My, my baby sister passed away in my mother's arms that morning. And... You know, the being a parent myself now, I, I just yeah. I, I don't even like to think of like to have to imagine that, and uh, and so to go through that, I can't I can't imagine what it was like. But um, within a matter of about six months, my mother had taken the worst tragedy in her life, and uh, and she had founded a support group for other parents that had lost children, um, and she had also started a fundraiser for the hospital that took care of my sister uh, while she was alive, and. She, uh, I really learned from my mom and dad uh, that you know you, you take any adversity uh, in your life and you can turn it into an advantage by helping other people with it. And and that really, even though at the time I had no idea, it laid a real foundation for you know my life's work and and everything I would go on to do uh, and and still you know do kind of with my guiding a guiding principle today. 
Man, I'm, I'm, I'm curious when you share such an intimate story that thankfully a few of us can fully understand and those that can, uh, God bless them because the, the, the pain of losing a child is indescribable and I don't think yeah. you, ever, you don't get over that one. No. I, I'm curious, when you hold your own little ones and you're putting them to sleep at night and uh, you're rocking them in their little cradles, yeah. did, did, did it change the way you parented? Um, did, 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 wait, I'm sorry, did, did what part change? Did losing your sister make you more cautious, uh, more tentative, uh, more apprehensive, more grateful as you parented your own little ones? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that, um, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't think of my sister often. I mean, I, I, I shouldn't say that. I, I think of her, uh, you know, if I, if, when I, when I share her story, um, but in fact, as I'm saying this, I'm going, I should be just kind of praying to her more often and just talking to her more often. I don't, I don't do that as much as I should. So thank you for bringing this to my attention. Um, that might've been the, the underlying, uh, most important pur- purpose of that question when we, we, uh, all, all right. said and done here. But, um, but yeah, but I mean, I think that for me, uh, just being a parent in general, and I think this is true for many parents, so I don't know that I'm, I'm uh, sharing anything uh, for the that's the first, uh, but it's it's really that it does expand your capacity for love and gratitude, and just you know, I never knew that I I didn't know that you could love something or someone uh, as much as I I love my kids, and and that's why that that pain you talked about of losing a child is you know because because the love is so great for your children. Um, I think that the the loss of that love, or right. the, or, the, or at least the loss of the child. Uh, physically would you know is just is devastating how this happened to you when you were eight and a half Mm -hmm. and as dramatic as this is you go through your own tragedy personally uh 11 and a half years later age 20 i believe yeah i had given a speech at a sales conference i was uh, a cutco a sales rep for cutco cutlery and i would usually be asked to speak at most of the the uh, our events or conferences and as i was given a speech um, that night, I, I left in my brand new Ford Mustang. I just about three weeks earlier, I had you know, every 19-year-old's dream or 20-year-old's right. dream, you know, buying a brand new car. So I'd bought my own my own car with my own money, and uh, and then getting into that car that night, it was about 11:30 at night, and I got onto the freeway to drive home. I was about an hour and a half from my my home in Northern California, and uh, around 11:30. 7 p.m. somewhere in that range, uh, a drunk driver that I had never, you know, never met before got on the freeway, got on the wrong side of the freeway, and uh, he was traveling approximately 70 to 80 miles per hour, but he was coming straight at me, and I don't remember seeing the headlights coming at me. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I even if I processed it or, or believed it or, or even saw it, but um, we we collided. Uh, I was hit. My car was struck head on you know, at 70 to 80 miles per hour, which is also the speed that I was traveling at. And then my car spun off the drunk driver and uh, my driver's side, I spun to where the driver's side of my car was vulnerable to the car that had been traveling behind me as my car was perpendicular to the road. And, uh, and that car struck my door at another 70 miles an hour impact. And I, uh, I immediately broke 11 bones on that side of my body from my femur broke, breaking in half to my pelvis breaking in three places, all the way up to the, 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 my eye socket being shattered. Um, and I, uh, I, I began losing a lot of blood. And about an hour later, I had bled to death, and I was clinically dead for six minutes uh, in a coma for six days. And when I came out of the coma, uh, doctors said that I, they didn't think I would ever walk again, and I had permanent brain damage. Are you walking? I am walking, running, jumping, wakeboarding. Uh, yes, so I, I, uh, I, I decided that 
I decided to accept that as, you know, I said, okay, if, if, that, if the doctors are right, I'm in a wheelchair the rest of my life. I just decided I can't change that I'm in a wheelchair. So I, I will be the happiest person that I can possibly be the most grateful human being you've ever met in a wheelchair because I'm in a wheelchair either way. Mm-hmm. And I can either let that define me and define my quality of life and my emotional well-being, or it can be you know, it can be what it is and something I fully accept and don't put any energy into wishing it didn't happen because that would be futile and not, you know, not productive and not helpful. And, uh, and so I thought that I I can accept the worst case scenario. Once I did that, John, it had no power over me. Mm. Now it was like, okay, well, if I'm in a wheelchair the rest of my life and I'm pick, I'm, I'm visualizing myself smiling in a wheelchair and being happy. And that, you know, it's like, well, that's really not, it's not, not the worst thing in the world, but, but, I didn't want that. That wasn't my ideal. So I decided to accept the worst case scenario and then put, you know, 99.9% of my energy and emotions and intentions and uh, visions and prayers into walking again. And that's what I, that's what I, every day I thought about it. I imagined it. I visualized it. I prayed about it. uh, And I, I I just had maintained unwavering faith that I'm going to walk again. I don't know when or how, but I'm going to walk again. I would literally say that out loud and to myself and uh, three weeks after the crash, after I was found dead, after my bones broke, only two weeks after I was out of the coma, the doctors came back with routine x-rays that they had you know, taken me in a wheelchair to get that day. And they brought the x-rays back to my hospital bed. And they said, we don't know how to explain this, but your body is healing so quickly that you actually, we're going to let you walk again, uh, walk for your first time tomorrow, you know, if you're up for it, uh, you're ready. And so it went from never walking again to three weeks later, you know, miraculously, I was able to take my first step and, you know, get back to the, onto the road to recovery. Hal, what do you, what do you credit that to? Um, it's something that uh, I, I call the miracle equation, and it's something I created when I was a sales rep, when I was trying to break the sales record. I was, I was no way, nowhere on track to break this record. And so then I just kind of reverse engineered it. I thought, okay, if, let's just say, if I were to somehow miraculously break this sales record, even though we're halfway through the, the competition period and I'm not even halfway to the, you know, nowhere near where I need to be, I thought, what would have had to have happened if I were to fast forward and imagine that this actually, I made this happen? And I thought, I would have to maintain unwavering faith that I could accomplish this seemingly impossible goal when statistically everything said there was no way it could happen. Everything said there was no way that, you know, that, 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 you know, I've got, I've got one day left. I'm, you know, I'm thousands of dollars away. I've only got two appointments. I mean, there's just statistically, there's no way that's going to happen. I thought I would have to maintain unwavering faith every day, really every moment of every day in the midst of every doubt that I had by telling myself, I'm going to reach my goal no matter what, there's no other option, even though I know that I, it might not be possible. Mm-hmm. And you see, if you look at the, 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 the accident, even though I don't know if I can walk again, I, I actually don't know. I literally might not, it might be a physical impossibility. I thought, but if it is going to be a possibility, <laughs> I've got to maintain unwavering faith in the midst of every – to override all my self-doubt, all the fears, all the insecurities that, that I have. And even though – you know, so it's, it's almost like I knew it was it, – I think often – trying to explain this here – often we are unwilling to maintain unwavering faith when there's a possibility that we might fail. 
And I don't know if it's out of ego, out of fear of failure. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what it is, but 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 we all do that. We all go. Well, I'm not going to guarantee it. I'm not going to. I'm not going to speak for sure because I might have egg on my face right mm-hmm, at the end. Mm-hmm. And so, but I think that if you can understand that, no, 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 this isn't a guaranteed thing. This is a strategy that will increase your success rate tremendously. So if you take an athlete that, you know, there's only 10 seconds left, the game's on the line, nobody wants the ball except the Michael Jordans, except the Kobe Bryants, except the, you know, the, the, I mean, the, the best athletes, the LeBron James, only the, the, the ultimate champions they go, you know what, I'm going to make every shot that I take, even if they miss their last six shots in the game. They know statistically they might miss, but that's not the way they approach life. They approach it with unwavering faith. They say, no, no, give me the ball. I'm going to make this shot, even if they miss the last three game-winning shots. Right? And it's, it's a strategy. It's a mindset that you consciously choose because you know that if you want to win at life more often than not, if you want to maximize your potential, it's, it's the only mindset that you can have to do that. And if you want to defy the odds and create miracles in seemingly impossible circumstances, you know, that's what I did with the whole walking thing. I, I, I committed to maintain unwavering faith that I was going to walk again, even though I knew that it wasn't a guaranteed possibility, but I could choose what was happening inside me in the way that I was approaching it. And so that's what I did, and I broke sales records with it. I then applied it to my car accident, and you know I know that we're probably going to dive into other topics that I've applied it to so. even even more recently. This concept of unwavering faith—you hear a guy as impassioned as Hal share this, and you might think, "Gosh, I'm glad that worked for him." But I, I want to make sure that our, our listeners, our friends, realize that that this applies in your marriage, in your singleness, in your work, yeah. in your sales as a nurse, as a teacher, as a retiree. As a young mom or father, in any aspect of life that matters to you, unwavering faith. Hal, I love the way you said that. Unwavering faith that this shall work. What an incredible way to approach any dream, any desire, any goal, any hope, any prayer in your life. Sure. Go ahead. And you have to support it with, so there's, there's the, the, I call it the miracle equation. The first half is unwavering faith. The second half doesn't need as much of an explanation. It's simply extraordinary effort. And, and, and that's what I, so when I was in the sales goal, like, okay, if I'm going to reach this goal, I've got to believe that I'm going to reach it, tell myself I'm going to reach it so that I can override those, those lulls. And, you know, when, if I go and have a, a bad appointment or a day of, you know, no sales or whatever, I've got to override the, the negative emotion with unwavering faith. And then I thought the only way that it's going to happen, though, there, there's a second component, and that's extraordinary effort. I've got to give it everything I have, mm. every moment of every available waking hour until the last possible moment, regardless of my results. Because see what happens, John, if we're pursuing a, a goal, whether it's uh, you know a dream in our lives or something in the short term, when we aren't on track, when we are met with obstacles or, or, or some form of self-doubt, we, the first thing that goes out the window is the faith that it's possible. You go, well, there's no way it's possible. Look at that. I'm, no, I'm not on track. I, I've been giving it all my all, and I'm, I'm just getting further and further away. There's no way. See, we give up the faith that it's possible first, and as soon as we give up the faith, the effort goes out the window mm-hmm. because, because we lose all the drive. Go, well, what's the point? I mean, even if we unconsciously think this, it's what's the point in trying when I don't actually believe it's possible? So those are the two components of the miracle equation, and I find, and this is true for every anyone, and I, I can give an example. I've taught it to a lot of other people, but anyway, the, um, when you maintain unwavering faith and you combine it with extraordinary effort, 
that's when you find that you can defy the odds and create miracles in your life, in your business, in your marriage, as a parent, you know, any area of your life, anything you're trying to create. Um, those are the two components. And, and, and again, it's that, that athlete and at the game time, the buzzer, they put forth extraordinary effort. They're chasing the ball down. They're trying to get the last steal until the last second, even if it doesn't seem possible to win. And, and that's why you see those champion players so often, they hit those game-winning shots and defy the odds you know, and create these magic moments for all of us because they are willing to apply unwavering faith and extraordinary effort to what they do and, and, and everything that they do in their life their lives how you you had this terrific tragic accident at age 20 i understand uh, generally how it impacted you physically i'm curious though how did it impact you emotionally so not as 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 you would think in fact um the this is one of my favorite anecdotes because it, it teaches a powerful lesson and it's but it's also it's just it's kind of it's, just, I don't know, it's kind of funny um the doctors called my parents in it was two weeks after the crash one week after i'd come out of the coma i was still being told i'd never walk again and there were no signs that i would walk again and the doctors called my parents in and they said we're concerned uh with how how's emotional state they said physically he's you know he's He's made it through the worst. Because at that time, they didn't, me walking again was their, the last of their worries. They were trying to make sure I was alive because I was, I was so you know, in critical condition for, for you know, a week or two. And so they said, he, he's made it through the worst. He's no longer in critical condition. But m- mentally and emotionally, we're concerned that Hal is in denial. They said, we think he might be a little bit delusional. And this is common for accident victims that are, that have, that are suffering you know, such a, a fate of never walking again, especially at such a young age, that they can't handle their reality. So they just check out of reality and they just kind of get into this delusional phase where everything's honky dory it's fine and one day they'll have to face reality it'll come crashing down and that can be very dangerous if they don't if they don't handle it in a healthy way and so they said we'd like you to talk to Hal and find out how he is really feeling because um, we need him to admit that whatever it is that he's covering up the you know maybe he's afraid of the future or he's 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 angry that this happened to him or he's depressed he doesn't know how to deal with it we need him to talk about that and, and bring it to the surface so that we can work with him you know the psychologists and my therapist right. and, you know that they can talk to him about it so my dad comes in, he shares, you know, the concerns of the doctor. He says, Hal, how are you really feeling? It's okay to be scared, sad, angry, depressed, but it's important that you, you got to talk about it. Feel it. It's okay. And I, I, my dad was concerned. I thought about it, and I just came back, and I said, Dad, I thought you knew me better than that. You know, and I really questioned, maybe, okay, am I hiding emotions? You know, I really, I really did go get introspective and, and give it a minute and, and think about it, but I, I came to the same conclusion. I said, Dad... I learned the five-minute rule in my sales training, my Cutco sales training, which is it's okay to be negative, but not for more than five minutes. And it was essentially what I said earlier, which is that there's no value in dwelling on something that you can't change. When I was told I couldn't walk again, this is the mindset that allowed me to have that insight was that there's no – once something has already in the past, whether it's five seconds, five minutes, five decades – once it's in the past and you can't go back in time and change it, there's no value in dwelling for an extended period of time on emotions that don't serve you. So let me, let me, let me pause you there just for yeah. a moment. Then yeah. why do all of us, except how, dwell on the past so much? Why, why do we let that negative comment that we heard in high school 36 years ago bring us down today? What, what, what is it about us as humans that just causes us to be attracted in some regards to the negative of, of the past? 
I think that it's like any aspect of being a human, there, there's evolution, right? So there's mental, physical, spiritual, right? There's evolution in every way for human beings. And, um, and, and, and not every human being, right? We, we, we've evolved physically in certain ways, but the, 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 the mental, the, the intellectual, the spiritual evolution, a lot of that really comes from, from study. You know, that's what I found, right? From whether it's learning it from a mentor or from a podcast such as this one or a book that you read or, you right, I mean, or, or, or a realization or a moment of, right, a moment of insight or prayer, uh, you know, meditation. I mean, there, there are a lot of ways that we evolve individually and collectively as a society. And so for me, um, I learned the five-minute rule, and I started applying it in everyday scenarios where, like traffic. Here's a great example. So if I had never learned the five-minute rule, and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that I'm getting to teach this. To, you know, I've taught this to hundreds of thousands of people around the world, and I've, I've received – I don't know how many, but, you know, hundreds of emails from people sharing how this has changed their life. So all it is is a lesson that I didn't invent. I learned the five-minute rule from my mentor who learned it from his mentor. Who You know, I don't know who invented it, right? I don't know what right. what year it was invented or adapted, but, but I – uh, so I would apply this in traffic. So most people don't like traffic. You know, if I'm giving a speech, I always say, raise, in fact, you saw me probably give the speech. I said, raise your hand if you don't like traffic, and hands, inevitably, almost every hand goes up. And, and, and I go, well, this is a game changer if you just apply this one lesson. And for me, I used to not like traffic. And then I realized, wait a minute, I'm in the car for 30 minutes, and I'm going to be late to my destination either way, right? So just imagine that we all got in the car, we're headed to a destination, we're going to be late. And we hit bumper-to-bumper traffic. Most of us go, gosh, man, no, not now, not not today, I I need to get to my destination, right? Yes. As if it's the the traffic's fault that you left the house late, you know? (laughs) But, But what happens is... Then we spend those 30 minutes frustrated bumper to bumper. We're, we're, we're riding the person's tail in front of us, and we're in like we're, – we're just tense. Our body is tense, and we're, we're irritated. We're frustrated. We're upset the entire 30 minutes, and I realize, wait a minute. I'm in the car for 30 minutes, and I'm going to my destination, but I get to choose how I spend those 30 minutes. Now, I could be like I've always been frustrated, tense, intense, angry, upset – riding the person's bumper in front of me just 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 on edge or i could just <sighs> take a deep breath say i can't change it the, the, the traffic's the traffic i'm gonna be late either way but i can choose whether or not i enjoy the, these 30 minutes i can choose whether or not i enjoy the ride and so i started turning those 30 minutes instead of being tense and frustrated arriving at my destination all frazzled i decided to call my car the gratitude mobile and just whenever i hit traffic it was a reminder that oh I'm going to spend the 30 minutes being asking myself, what am I grateful for? What's great in my life right now? What am I excited about? And I would literally do this, and I would sometimes I'd talk in my head, sometimes out loud. But it, what that what that opened my eyes to, and I would I would enjoy those 30 minutes, mm-hmm. and I'd be late, and I'd have to deal with it, but I'd be late with a smile. My body wouldn't be tense; it would be just free and calm and at peace. And and it real I realized that I could apply this whether it was the most you know the tr- most scariest moment of my life being told I'm never going to walk again and I have these broken bones or every single day in traffic or anything in between that I was in control of my emotional state and it had nothing to do with what was going on around me or very little to do with what was going on around me and almost everything to do with what was going on inside of me and by directing my focus accepting what I couldn't change and focusing on what I had in my life that was great or what I had in my life that I was working towards, that I was excited about, mm-hmm. and one of those, the two frames I would focus on, um, 
that, that I, I was free from emotional pain. And then I started teaching it to other people. And like I said, I've had hundreds, if not thousands of people share via email or after a speech or, or that I meet that read my book, you know, that, that they were able to apply the five minute rule and the can't change it philosophy just to say those three words to their own lives and their own marriages and their own relationships and as a parent and go, you know what? I stopped getting upset at the things that I used to get upset at every single day because I, I, I didn't know that I had a choice not right. to. I thought that thing upsets me, so I'm upset versus that thing upsets me, but I'm going to accept it because I can't change it. Now I'm at peace with it, and now I'm free. Hal, your, your freedom has set others free, in, in part because you wrote a book called Miracle Mornings. For those of us who have not yet read it, when people read it, when they check it out, what, what's one tangible takeaway that you hope they receive? Well, I think that there's, I'll, I'll, I'll give kind of 1.5. So the, the first one is um, people become morning people that have never been morning people, right? I'm doing air quotes. When yeah, I, say I, I can people. see them already. Yeah, yeah, that, that have never been morning people their entire lives. And that was a big surprise for me. Somebody asked me on an interview, what percentage of, of people that, have, that are do the miracle morning every day? Because it's it's, I mean, it's this movement. It's, you know, it's mm-hmm. translated into 27 languages. You know, there's, there's hundreds of thousands of people around the world that do Miracle Morning, that post about it on social media in languages that I have to click the C translation button mm-hmm. on Facebook. To, you know, I mean, it, it just it, it, it blows my mind. And, and the, one of the biggest things is that we surveyed our audience and, or our readers and said, what, did you, were you a morning person before Miracle Morning, and it was just something you integrated into your morning, you know, the already, yeah. you're already waking up early, you just, you just started doing the Miracle Morning practices, or did Miracle Morning open your eyes and, and create the possibility for you to become a morning person? And I didn't know the answer to that question, what percentage of my audience uh, was which, which and which. And it was, I was blown away, it was 72% mm. of everyone that, you know, is doing Miracle Morning, they said they had never been a morning person their entire life until the book. So, so that's the first kind of important piece, because if, that, if I didn't show people how to be the morning person, then the rest of it wouldn't matter. Because they go, yeah, 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 it was so inspiring, and I, I saw the value in doing those six practices in the morning. And, but right, God, but... You know, I gave it a few days, and I just fell back in my old, you know, I became, I went back to sit in the snooze button. So that's the big linchpin that makes everything else possible. And then here's the big takeaway, and this is what the Miracle Morning is about. It's not about waking up early as much as it's about waking up better. And what I mean by that is the profound realization that that, uh, uh, inspired me to create the Miracle Morning was that... Our levels of happiness, fulfillment, success in every area of our life has much less to do with what we do every day and much more to do with who we are becoming every day. And so what the Miracle Morning is about is it's the most, the simplest, most effective and and straightforward ritual to becoming the person that you need to be through, through daily personal development to be able to create and sustain the levels of happiness, fulfillment, and success that you want in every single area of your life. And that's why I think it's becoming, it, it's so life-changing for people because they apply it to whatever area is, is, is important to them, one at a time or, or sometimes multiple at a time. But if they go, gosh, my marriage right now is hurting, they apply the Miracle Morning. And I've, I have emails from people, John, that say, you, it, Miracle Morning saved my marriage. And, you know, and I, I like... I, I get goosebumps when I say that, and I, 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 it, it, it's hard for me to believe because when I wrote the book, I didn't think that would right. happen. I, I didn't know that would. I, I didn't write it thinking that I'm going to save marriages, or I'm going. You know what I mean? Like, so, so yeah, it's, it's 
I don't know if you, you I, could tell, but I'll, I'm I'm like a kid when I talk about it. <laughs> we have interviewed, you know, six dozen or so guests at this point, and I and I'm not sure I felt the energy that I'm feeling in the room that I that I've ever felt this way with any guest before. Hal, it's contagious, and I know you, you as a friend. It's not fake. You you didn't just drink a big Red Bull at a cup of coffee to get lit up to get people fired up for six minutes and then go back to your work and back to your life. This this is who you are, and I I, I bet right now there are some people sitting back the the, uh, the more cynical folks among us thinking you know what I'm glad it's worked for him, but he's really he hasn't really been through stuff recently, you know like he, he has no idea what I'm going through in my marriage or sure, in my years, health or I, in my crisis. Ago he had a car accident. Sure. Right. I mean, that, that, that was 20 years ago, man. He's, yeah, yeah. he's not dealing with tragedy today. And, and uh, maybe for a little while that was true. But you've had a couple of speed bumps lately, and one of them was a massive, mighty one. Are you, are you willing to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'm, I'm, uh, we can go anywhere you want. Let, 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 let's talk about, uh, about a diagnosis you received recently. Yeah, it was actually, we just had our one-year anniversary November 8th, so just a few weeks ago. Um, the uh, last year around Halloween, uh, right right before Halloween, I uh, was, my I woke up gasping for air, and I went to urgent care the next morning because I was up all night having trouble breathing, and they uh, they misdiagnosed me with pneumonia uh, because they, they looked like there was a mass on my lung, and what it was was actually my lung was collapsed because of fluid, because my lymph nodes in my chest were, oh, were ex- I, I don't know the technical term, but they were ginormous. <laughs> they, were, they were enlarged. And, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I went to see an, another doctor to get a second opinion, and he brought me in the next day. Uh, his nurse called and said he wants to see you first thing in the morning. And they said, best case scenario, you've got some sort of unexplainable infection that we need to do more testing for. Um, worst case scenario, you've got uh, a form of lymphoma, a cancer, it looks like. Uh, we're not sure, though. We, we've got to do more testing. And um, that was, I was really, or I am a really healthy, I'm, I'm big into healthy eating and, and no chemicals. And I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm, a, I'm like an OCD healthy person. And so I thought there's no way it's cancer. You know, I'm like, I live an anti-cancer lifestyle as much as I can. And uh, long story short, it was a very rare, very aggressive form of cancer called acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Uh, I went for a third opinion uh, to uh, one of the top cancer hospitals in the world in Houston, Texas, called MD Anderson Mm -hmm. Cancer Center. And uh, they confirmed that, uh, well, when I went in, that not only was my lung collapsed, and and by the way, at that point, I had had my lung drained uh, about a liter of fluid, a liter, which is, if you picture a giant... Fiji bottle. That's a lot of fluid. One liter at a time was drained every other day for 11 days before I was diagnosed with cancer. And I would go in and they'd have to stab me through my back of my rib with a giant needle and drain fluid. And I would have to go into the ER and do it every other day for about a week and a half. Well, I I just got to pause you, man. Your happy-go-lucky, optimistic, miracle morning self, was it wavering during this time? Um. You know what? It, it wasn't actually. I, I, I'm glad you asked that because let me let me tell you when I when I got the, the 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 potential cancer diagnosis. So when I was told right after, go kind of jumping back to where I was had left the story off. Um, the doc, when the, my doctor said, "Hey, you know, he's my he's my, and this is my my regular family physician." So I mean, he we know each other well, and he says, "You know, buddy, I, Al, I gotta tell you something," and you know, and he went through it and. 
I said, Doc, I said, I accept life before it happens. He was actually kind of nervous, it seemed, to tell me. And I said, whatever you've got to tell me, I've already accepted it. There, it's not gonna, I'm not going to freak out over it. Whatever it is, if, it's, if it's, I'm dying, well, then, I've, I'll, I, you know, it is what it is. I can't change it. I'll figure out the best approach I can to, to whatever you're going to tell me. So he told me that, I can't, you know, that it could be cancer. And then I called my wife. Now, I broke down crying because... Not because of what I was going through, and I, don't, I, I hate even saying that because I, I, like, I, don't, I don't ever try to brag over the way that I view the world. It's just one way to view the world, you know, but I, but, but I personally was at peace with this. I called my wife and I cried because I knew what she would experience. In fact, I get choked up right now sharing it, but knowing what she would experience, mm. her fear of losing me. <sighs> and so that was hard. Mm. And uh, the next call I made was to... Uh, to my uh, my business partner and one of my best friends, uh, John Burgoff, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I had calmed down from my you know talking to my wife, and I said, John, you'll you'll never believe this, but remember you know you know, and he knew he knew that I'd been in the ER, unable to breathe with this fluid in my lungs, so he knew there was something <clears throat> going on, and he said, uh, I said, you'll never believe it, and I said, you know, best case scenario, I got some sort of weird infection, and worst case scenario, that it's cancer, and he thinks there's a you know, it's like a fifty fifty chance. And, uh, and, and my, you know, John, I mean, as a friend, you know, he didn't know how to respond, yeah. <laughs> you know, to I that. You. Yes. And, uh, and I said, buddy, I said, look, I said, I'm sure you're, you're, you know, you're, you're at a loss of how to respond. I said, you know me, I said, I, I accept everything I can't change. And I just want you to know that if I have cancer, you don't, you don't need to feel sorry for me for a second. I'm not going to feel sorry for myself for a second. If you want to feel sorry for my wife and kids, I'll probably <laughs> join you. Join you, but uh, I said, um, uh, I said, I said, look, I said that this just means that there's another big lesson uh, that I'm supposed to learn, and uh, and probably another book that I'm supposed to write and, and share it with the world. And uh, you know, and, I, and and right now I'm emotional because of the fam- when every time I mention the family, I get emotional. But, but <laughs> right. talking to him, I, I was actually making jokes. And 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 I'll, I'll share with you the la- the next call I made. And this is the one before I called my parents, which you know that one I got all emotional again, of course. But uh, I called my friend John Vroman, and John Vroman, you, I think you know, have you do you know John Vroman? I do. Okay, so John Vroman, one of the you know greatest guys in the world, uh, founder of the uh, Front Row Foundation, and I'm a big I've been a board member for Front Row. I'm a big donor for Front Row. And I always joked with John Vroman that because uh, front row, for those that don't know, they send people braving life-threatening illnesses to the front row of their the event of their dreams. And I'm, I'm a big UFC fan, and uh, and so I would tease John occasionally, and I'd say, you know, John, I I I, I was hit by the drunk driver, and I you know technically I died. Can't I get a retroactive front row experience, you know, from you know 15 years ago or whatever? Yes. And I would kind of joke with him. And so that was how, how I actually presented it to him. And it's funny that I, I learned to use humor when my sister passed away when I was eight. I actually told my friends that she had died by making a joke. Um, it was a, wasn't a funny joke, but it was a lighthearted. Yes. I said, hey, Garrett, guess where my sister is? And they knew she was in the hospital fighting for her life. And, you know, my friends are eight years old or, yeah, you know, seven years old. And they go, where? And I said, she's up in heaven. How great is that? Mm. So that's just how I, you know, I was, it was, you know, it was, a, I guess it's just the way I learned to deal with adversity was through, you know, humor, you know, right? And yes. then my mom taught me a little bit of a deeper way to learn, turn, by turning it into an advantage for other people. Um, but those were really the combination. And, and so I called my friend John. I said, hey, John, remember how you always joked about a front row experience that you should retroactively give me from my car accident? He said, yeah. I said, well, I actually might qualify for one again. 
And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, I, 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 said, I, I don't know, but I could have cancer. I said, I, I don't think that I do. So I, I'm hoping that I don't qualify for a front row experience. But I, I, you know, I said, but here's what's going on. And, and he got real emotional. And, you know, and, and I said, John, I said, look, seriously, I, I don't, I, I said, I don't, you don't need to feel sorry for me because this is a gift. And, uh, you know, I, I, and I, 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 my frame was, John, that the accident was the best thing that ever happened to me. That was my frame for, you know, probably a year or so after I had that realization when I was writing my first book uh, about my car accident was, this is the best thing that ever happened to me mm-hmm. because this is going to allow me to help a lot of people. And so I, that's how I, what I told John Broman. I said, so John, I said, remember I told you, the, you know, I always said the car, car accident was the best thing that ever happened to me. Well, I have a feeling if this is cancer, this will be the new biggest and best yes. thing that has ever happened to me because it will allow me to make a bigger impact and it will teach me to be a better version of myself. And so that's how I responded before I even had the cancer. And then when I had the cancer, that was my response. And I'll just, John being, you know, I always want to be very transparent. When I was in immense physical pain, which there were many times throughout the cancer through chemotherapy and, and different periods that I was, I, you know, I had some, some, just some bad incidences, some crazy infections that had me hospitalized and on morphine. And um, there were times where I wanted to die. Um, I, I wouldn't, I, I didn't want to die from a, where I would have chosen it because of my wife and kids, I would have never left them. But there were times where I absolutely said, um, uh, dying would be a lot easier. So, so yeah, so that, that, you know, but, so, but, but that was only, you know, when you're in in intense physical pain for any of us, I think, you know, you're, you don't, you want out of that pain in the moment. So how, when you are in that pain, physically or emotionally, and now you're talking to an audience that is either in that pain, coming through that pain, or about to re-enter into that pain, because that's our lives. It's full of ups and downs, and the storms are either blowing, we just came through it, or we are about to re-enter into it. What keeps you sane and grounded and optimistic and buying life? Yeah, I think that it is, well, I'll give, there's three parts to that, and this really is, when I when I started speaking at high schools and colleges after my car accident, I was, you know, I was, I was 21 right after the car accident and, you know, 22, 23. I mean, I spoke at colleges for uh, high schools and colleges for probably five or six years. I mean, I still do occasionally, but that was really what I did. Um, the, I, when I asked myself, what are the, gr- what are the greatest, most profound lessons that I can teach other people from my experience? And what happened is I, I, I became a keynote speaker for corporations pretty quickly. And so I experimented with, you know, my first speech, I thought, well, I'm going to, just teach what I teach college students and high school students because they're they're pretty universal lessons for human beings at any age, right? Yes. And and I thought I'm going to get feedback from the audience, so I did a little survey. And anyway, long story short, it was very it was the lessons I never change. And even in my speech today, I still teach these lessons at the beginning of my Miracle Morning keynote that I give because they're so important. Um, and, and and I was able to frame them in, a, in, in to keep them somewhat memorable. The, I call these the ABCs of taking life head on. My first book was called Taking Life Head On. So the A is for accept all things you cannot change. And we don't need to talk about that because we've gone in depth on that, right? You can use the five-minute rule. Those three powerful words, can't change it. I call it the can't change of philosophy, where when something goes wrong, you set your timer for five minutes on your phone, give yourself five minutes to bitch, moan, complain, feel sorry for yourself, punch a wall, whatever you got to do, feel the emotions, give yourself five minutes. When the timer goes off, you say those three powerful words, can't change it. 
And that reminds you that if I can't change it, there's no value in me wishing I could or wishing it were different or, 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 or feeling sorry for myself or angry. I'm not, what, what's the point? I'm not going to put emotion into that. Instead, I'm going to say those words as many times as I need to. Can't change it. Take a deep breath. I can't change it. And just, and just sit with those three words. Sit with that reality that if I can't change it, then any negative emotion I feel is self-created by my level of resistance to whatever my reality is. To the degree that I wish or want it were different, that's the degree that I create emotional pain for myself. It's not the thing that happened. It's my interpretation right. and my response to the thing. The, the B is for be grateful for everything, right? And everything. Because, you know, they say hindsight's twenty twenty. Well, why do you have to – why wait into the future to realize that every adversity can serve us if we learn from it, if we don't repeat it? Why wait into the future? Why not in the moment go, oh – this is the worst thing that ever happened to me. That probably means that it will be the greatest thing that ever happened to me in the long run mm-hmm. for the rest of my life. You know, I always say this last year of my life was the most difficult year of my life, and it was the best year of my life simultaneously because of what I learned and who I became. And that's not automatic, though. You have to, you have to approach life with that mindset. It doesn't automatically happen. If you bitch, moan, and complain about everything going wrong in your life, then that becomes your reality, and you don't grow from that, right? Mm-hmm. You only grow when you learn, you look you seek to grow. You seek to learn. And then the C is create progress daily toward the life of your dreams or toward your ideal vision, whatever language works for you. So when you accept everything you're, you can't change, you're at peace with all negativity in your life, all adversity, all challenges. When you be grateful for everything that you have in your life, you truly find fulfillment. And when you wake up every day and you create progress towards the life that you that you could ultimately dream of, the best life you can imagine, then you, you find fulfillment in that journey. And so that, 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 to me, truly is the trifecta of loving the life that we have deeply and authentically while we are actively creating yes. and living the life of our dreams. Through this process, you become even clearer that th- these three other words matter. What matters most? Yeah. You and I had a conversation uh, offline about those three words and what you're doing with that more recently. But but explain what those three words mean, and then we're going to begin uh, shifted into the Live Inspired seven questions. So tell me what what matters most means to Hal Elrod. Um, yeah, that, that is the the and then, you know like we talked about offline. That was the dominant question for me uh, in uh, really every day, you know, I mean, there was obviously a lot of questions that I asked why this happened to me, you know, I mean, is it, what am I supposed to learn from this? Um, but the, the question that I, I kind of, everything honed down to that became the dominant question for the, through the last year of my life was what matters most. And I applied that question to every area of my life. So I was trying to heal from cancer. What matters most in my healing journey? Um, you know, and I, uh, you know, I didn't want to do chemotherapy. I was very anti-chemotherapy just because it's, it's a poison. It's not a, you know, it doesn't build your body. It, yes. it kills everything in your body. And because of the cancer that I had being so rare, uh, there was no evidence. I reached out, John, this is like a, a slight tangent, but I'll get back real quick here. But I reached out to one of the top holistic doctors in the world, Suzanne Summers' doctor, you know, from Three's Company, right? The, yes. the infamous Suzanne Summers. <laughs> right. In her book, she recommended this is, she recommended a host of holistic doctors. This was the number one holistic doctor. He wouldn't see me. Not that he wouldn't see me, but he said, I can't do anything for you. Your cancer is so rare. I don't have any experience. No one has any experience doing anything holistically to heal your cancer. So that was terrifying. Well, it's like, okay, if the best holistic doctor in the world won't see me and I don't want to do chemo, I got no option. What do I do? 
so I had to do chemotherapy, and, and then I just did everything that I could do holistically uh, that those doctors recommended to, to simultaneously. So um, anyway, where was I at with this? Um, the, uh, so I asked, what matters most in terms of healing my cancer? What matters most overall in my life? What matters most for me to be the best husband that I could be? What matters most to be the best father to my daughter that I can be? What matters most to be the best father to my son that I can be? So I really got specific, and I wrote these things down in the form of affirmations so that I could read them. You know, I, I just affirmations to me are reminders. Yeah. So what matters most to me, and I think you have to ask yourself these questions, and you know, some of my answers probably overlap for most people. Some of them may not, and there are other answers that you have that don't apply to me. Um, but for me, what matters most, number one, is health. Because without our health, none of the other stuff that matters most matters, right? Because you, know, you can't experience it or enjoy it. Now, you know, that, that's speaking in the physical realm, right? We can get into a real esoteric spiritual discussion mm-hmm. where we go, well, God matters most, and when I die, I'll see God. So, right? so we could really go into a lot of different, we could go down the rabbit hole. But um, in, in life on earth, right, health matters most to me because as I learned, everything else that mattered most, and health was always important to me, but it was never number one. It was yes. always like top three. But here's what I found, and I would encourage anyone to check in with this. I valued productivity over health, John, because if I was tired, that's my body telling me you need rest. But productivity said you need caffeine, right? And I realized that I almost always chose productivity over health. Um, you, you know, you should probably sleep eight hours, you know, seven at least, but you know, there's seven to eight hours. I would say I was sleeping five and a half hours for six years. And because I valued productivity over health, and so that was the big shift. So everyone listening goes, well, yeah, yeah, I know health's important, but I would encourage you to ask that question. What does your schedule, does your, what do you value more health or productivity? What do you value more health or right? So, so are, is your, is your schedule reflecting your value? That's fair. And that, for me, was a big one with the, the number two, which is family. Uh, or, for you know, I would just say human beings, relationships, right? You could define that in a few different ways or, or label it in a few different ways. But, but for me, looking at my family and look, realizing that they're number one, but I always said they were number one. But, but again, I would encourage you to, 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 to do the same, the same check-in for yourself, which is I looked at my schedule. And anybody looking at my schedule would go, well, if your family's number one, why do you spend 95% of your time working and 5% of your time in the evening when you're exhausted giving your family what's left over of you? Mm. And I was like, right? And I went, wow. Yeah, of course. So, so now, every morning for 30 minutes, I play with my son when he wakes up. On the weekends, I do Cosmic Kids yoga with my kids before we have screen time. I mean, before we do anything else. So, so now my schedule reflects my values. My, when I get off work, my daughter has an alarm set, and so do I. As soon as I'm off work, because it's school in the morning, she has to go early, so I can't, I can't play with her while I play with my son. But in the, in the evening, every single day, five days a week, I play with her as soon as I get off. My wife and I now have reading time in our schedule where we read to the kids together. We used to just do one or the other. We realized it was a great family opportunity to connect as a family. Um, so all these things, you know, date nights with my wife, they're in the schedule every week. So now my, my values are much more reflected uh, in my schedule than they were before. How, just a couple questions before we shift gears. N- number one is how are you physically today? Uh, so my, I'm cancer-free, um, which is a celebration, but it's also, for me, you know, not the end-all, be-all. I think that too many people, um, we're not, you know, we, we, we get short-term wins and we, we celebrate them too, a little too big to where we, we, we go back to doing the things that we yes. were doing before we got the things that got us the wins, right? You know, and so for me, I really look at this as that's a great win along the, the lifetime journey of 
remaining cancer free. And you know, I mean, and I hate to say, I don't mean this to be a you know a scare tactic at all, but they say one in two men in our lifetime are going to get cancer, and one in three women. So I would encourage anybody on this call, you know, go go get the DVD "Healing Cancer from the Inside Out," or read the you know watch the DVD "Forks Over Knives," or read the book. Yeah. Or, you know what I mean? Like, I really do research on on what are you know what what causes cancer because for me i look at this as all of us need to be really not scared but just aware and proactive aware and thoughtful what'd you say i said and proactive and proactive thank you yeah yeah exactly not just aware but aware and proactive uh in alignment with the awareness so i'm, I'm going to walk you way back now to this question you know, 16 17 18 years ago the guy who hit you and caused the accident have you had any interaction with him uh, I saw him at the court, uh, the the trial, um, and I asked that he be given a much lighter sentence than they were trying to throw at him. Uh, they were the, the 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 heaviest sentence that he could get uh, was I think three years in pr- yeah three years or six years in prison, and uh, I think that was it. And I asked for six months in prison, and then uh, three years of community service of him speaking at at schools, sharing his story. I thought what good does he do rotting away in prison? I thought a little prison time was helpful because, you know, that's a wake-up call as you're sitting in prison. I've heard it's very introspective for most, <laughs> most people. Um, but I thought he also was a father who's 31 years old with two kids. And I thought, I'm not benefiting his family by putting their dad in jail for three years. I thought it'd be much better if he was in jail for six months. He had that time to really think about what he did. And then he, for the other three years, instead of sitting in jail, he was speaking at schools. And anyway, uh, so I, I, I held no will ill toward him because all he did was make a mistake and drink alcohol and drive. I don't think he got behind the wheel thinking, I'm going to find Hal Elrod on the highway and, and ruin his life today. So I don't understand when people think to me, really short-sighted that they hold anger toward people that accidentally hurt them. You know, if it's an accident, it's an accident. So for me, I was I was at peace with not only what would happen to me, but but with the drunk driver and 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 you know what he did. And and so yeah, so there was no ill will, and um, he ended up getting the full sentence based on the you know the judge making that call. How your uh, your ability to forgive and live in the moment is remarkably inspiring, man. I have a feeling Pope Francis and the, the Dalai Lama call you for advice. But my, my, <laughs> my, my, my third question before we talk about the Live Inspired 7 is what's what's next for Hal Elrod? Oh, man. We uh, we just put on our uh, our fourth annual Best Year Ever Blueprint live event. Uh, we had 400 people in San Diego. And John, the, the way I've been trying to figure out how to ex- ex- like describe it, and I, don't, I haven't put it on paper yet, but I think the way that just has been coming to me is it was the most beautiful shared human experience that I've ever been a part of. Mm. Um, it was 400 people um, just being so, they, they felt so safe and connected. And it's, you know, I mean, day one, everybody's skeptical, except the people that have been to our events before. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. We create a really, a very unique culture of yes. just, again, that authentic love and connection and support. And, um, the, and, we, and we've got, high, you know, we have mil, mil, you know, multi-millionaires and people doing $10 million in the, in the room. I mean, the, the people we attract are incredible. Uh, and I'm not just those folks. I'm just saying that the, the spectrum of people is, you know, wildly successful to people that are in, you know, there were high school students there, that their parents had brought them that had been there to previous years and said, I'm bringing my kids to this. Um, so anyway, so I'm, I'm, I'm reeling off of that. Um, and then on the third day of that event, we showed for the first time ever, and I had only seen it 24 hours before for the first time in myself, but the Miracle Morning movie, the documentary that we're working on, um, they, uh, we showed a 60-minute preview. We just, and that's just because we couldn't get the movie done in time to show the full thing. Yes. But 
but we showed a 60-minute preview with a cliffhanger that was my cancer journey. And again, I, I've been just <laughs> nervous biting my nails because this was supposed to be sent to me months ago so I could give feedback and we could improve it. And I had, I was getting it 24 hours before, and I already announced that we're showing it to 400 people. So I had no, if it was, if it was off, it wasn't good. It was off, I yes. Good about it. I was terrified, and man, it exceeded my expectations. And it'll be released in early 2018. Uh, it's the Miracle Morning, and it's it's going far beyond the book, interviewing some of the most successful people in the world, um, people like Layla Ali, 18-time world mm-hmm. champion boxer, Muhammad Ali's daughter. Um, Dr. John Gray, who wrote Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, uh, Robin Sharma, Robert Kiyosaki, uh, Lewis Howes, um, Sean Stevenson. I mean, on and on and on. It just, it, it's incredible. And it turned out so good. And this is just, that was the first, you know, first draft of it. So I, I have a feeling that next year, because my mission in life, John, if anyone says, how can I help you? It's always, my mission is to elevate the conscious, consciousness of humanity one morning at a time. And, and that's, because of what I've seen with the Miracle Mornings, just continuing to share it. And I had a realization that, you know, less than 5% of society reads self-help books, but, uh, you know, 95% of, at least in America, where I'm from, uh, you know, in most countries in the world, uh, they, they, they watch television. I don't know the exact percentage, but right, it's obviously right. far greater than books. And I realized that's how I can reach the majority is to, uh, you know, to, to, to reach them through, through the medium of a film. Man, I, I feel like a pretty energized, blessed, present guy. And then I hang out with you, and uh, I got to take a long, hard look in the mirror. How I, I've so enjoyed hanging out with you, and every guest that has preceded you have been walked down the path of asked of being asked, and then answering seven questions. They're called the Live Inspired Seven. So the first question, How Elrod, is what is the best book you have ever read? Um, yeah, I got to go with the one that comes to mind is Conversations with God. And uh, it is—it's uh, not a religious book uh, per se. In fact, uh, if you're—you know—anyway, just just go read the reviews on Amazon. <laughs> awesome. But it's—it's uh, it, it's a book I've read probably three times. And and I will say this, John, to be very fair, um, I think it's probably been f- at least five years since I've read that book. Uh, I'm a different person than I was five years ago. No so if it. I read it today, I don't know if I'd still answer that. But it was—it was essentially my favorite book for so many years that that's why it still kind of comes up as the default answer. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, you can't go wrong with that one. Hal, tomorrow you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at 103, leaving you, my friend, with millions and millions of dollars. What would you do with that newfound wealth? Whew, I would, well, uh, uh, donate a minimum of 50% to charity. Um, I, I just started a nonprofit uh, that I'm, we're not even officially a 501c3 yet. We just filed for that status. It's called Support the Unsupported. And uh, I am, uh, I'd probably take a percentage and, and, and put it into that charity specifically. Uh, and then I would definitely take a percentage. And uh, I, mean, I don't know what percentage it would be, but I would, uh, I would invest, you know, put it, put it away for retirement for uh, my family and probably go spend some stuff to enjoy a little bit and have some fun. Right on. If your house caught fire and all living things, that's your bride and your babies and the animals are out, and you have an opportunity to run back into your home and grab just one item. What's the one item that you would you would go back in for? My computer, without hesitation. Yeah, <laughs> it's got and it, the it's beauty got of that it is all, man. That, and it also that includes the photo album. It includes right. It includes the whole, the whole movies. It includes a lot. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anybody, living or dead, who would you want to have that long visit with? Mm, my wife Ursula. 
Wow, man. What would you talk about? Um, all, the, all the things I would ask the question, what matters most? And what have we not talked about? What's the best advice that you've ever received? Uh, do the right thing, not the easy thing. And that, that is the guiding principle for everything from when the alarm goes off in the morning and I really want to snooze, but I committed the night before that I was going to wake up, you know, to um, basically any, every, every decision in my life, that, that's my guiding principle. Hal, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? Um, everything is going to work out for the best. Don't, you don't need to stress for over a moment. Just enjoy every single one. And I hope our listeners hear that one more time. Everything is going to work out for the best. I, I believe that's true at age 20, and uh, no matter where we are today, everything is going to work out. And finally, Hal Elrod, it has been said that all great people and writers and speakers and thinkers and thrivers, and I'm on the phone with one of them right now, can have their lives summed up in one sentence. Hal Elrod, how would you like your one sentence to read? Uh, he elevated the consciousness of humanity. <laughs> Hal, you've certainly elevated the consciousness of John O'Leary and our community, and I think the humanity that has so far bumped into you, man. You, you are a gift. You are doing the right thing, not the easy thing, and in doing so, you are touching lives. Uh, but, buddy, I love you, brother. Thank you, and it, it is, it, It's mutual. It's mutual. We, uh, I feel like we're, we're kindred spirits. Just, we went through different adversities and using our own unique personalities and gifts to reach no people in, in similar ways, man. So I, I admire and appreciate uh, everything that you do, John. My friends, that was Hal Elrod. This is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. Well, my friends, what a wild ride that energetic, incredible human being guided us down the path of his life, the, the, the journey of ups and downs. A lot of downs, not only the three that he shared, losing a sister, car accident that caused him to not breathe for six minutes, and also the most recent diagnosis of cancer. But he's had other tragedies and difficulties that he's dealt with in life. And yet that attitude, that optimism, that natural joy, that that sense of forgiveness, and it's not fake, it's not feigned, it's genuine. That's Hal Elrod. That's the guy that I know. That's my friend. That, that's the person I keep bumping into whenever we see each other, whether it's in Austin or St. Louis or anywhere in the marketplace. That's him. And I'm so glad that you tuned in today to hear his story and how some of the lessons that he has learned might apply in your own walk, because we all deal with adversity. We all struggle with forgiveness. We all wonder what's next. And yet I think the framework that he gave us today of asking, what matters most? Right at this moment, what matters most? That is a worthy question. I grabbed onto it today. I'm going to write and journal about it tomorrow, and I encourage you to do the same thing. My friends, if you enjoyed this episode with Hal Elrod as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, do me a favor. Do a few things. One, rate the show. Leave your comments around the show. Tell your friends. Tell your coworkers. Tell the ladies and gentlemen that you work out with, that you worship with, that you chill with, that you walk with about the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. It's a great way that we can expand the ability that we have collectively to positively elevate lives. What a great calling and cause in each of our journeys to positively elevate lives. So rate the show. Share the show. Put it on Facebook, social media. Let others know that there is reason for hope, reason for inspiration, reason to race forward, but also to embrace the miracle of this morning, of this day. 
My friends, to learn more about all of that, you can go to johnolearyinspires.com. That's where we keep this podcast plus all the other previous podcasts. They're all cool. They're all worthy of checking out. So visit us over there, johnolearyinspires.com, and leave me a note when you get when you get there. I love hearing from you what's working, what can work even better going forward. So I'll look forward to hearing your feedback. Woo, man, after that hangout session with Hal Elrod, I need a coffee. I need a workout. I need... Uh, another opportunity to dance into this day. I'm sure you do as well. So let's get ready to dance. It's going to be a miracle morning, an incredible day. So for this time and until next time, this is John O'Leary and this is your day. Live inspired.